Prayer is just so very, very un-American. Because prayer implies that we're needy, doesn't it? It implies that we aren't the ones in control of our lives. It implies that we're dependent in some form or fashion. And yet, our country was founded on what or with what? The Declaration of Independence. As Americans, we interpret freedom as independence. And we work really, really hard not to need help from anyone else. We work really, really hard not to be a burden to anybody, not to be in need. We work really, really hard to be self-reliant, self-sufficient, strong, independent. But while independence might make us good Americans, it makes us lousy Jesus followers. Why? Well... If you take any time to flip through the Gospels and look at Jesus' actions and behaviors and habits, you'll notice something. Over and over and over and over again throughout the Gospels, you find Jesus doing what? You can say it. You can talk to me. Praying. In fact, when he was, went missing, which happened quite often, and his disciples were like, where's Jesus? I haven't seen him. Have you seen him? They would find him doing what? They would find him praying. Uh, There's a verse in Luke chapter 5 that says this. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely or desolate places and prayed. And prayer at its very core is the acknowledgement that we can't manage life on our own. That we need something. That we are dependent upon God. And if Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, found it necessary to pray, that begs a question. How much more than do we need to pray? You know, if you're here and your life is going great, um, if your life's a bed of roses and you don't think you need anything, uh, the message I'm about to preach is not going to be very helpful to you. But if you're here today and you're just hanging on, you're just getting by, you're surviving, you're in a new town, at a new college, you're lonely. You're at the end of your rope. You're discouraged. You're tired. You're weary. You're anxious. You're at your wit's end. You're fearful. You're wondering how you're going to make it. You're needy in some form or fashion. Well, then, I'm glad you're here. You've come to the right place. And I'm quite confident that the words of Jesus from our text of Scripture this morning are going to be a profound encouragement to your heart and to your soul. So welcome to Fellowship Nashville. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here, and we get to continue. I get the privilege of being your tour guide through Scripture this morning as we continue our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, which we've given the subtitle, Apprenticing the Way of Jesus. And today we come to a very familiar portion of the Sermon on the Mount. It's what's oftentimes called the Lord's Prayer. But perhaps a better name for it would be the Disciples' Prayer because Jesus gave it to his disciples to pray. It's a familiar passage. And if you're a regular attender of church services, it's likely that you've heard this passage before, and you've probably heard a sermon or two or three or ten on this passage. And I would imagine you've heard um, 
sermons like this. Okay, here are the, the elements, the different elements, the six different elements of the Lord's Prayer. And so let's break those down and look at what they are. And so pray like this. You need to have adoration. You need to have confession. You need to have supplicate. How many of you have heard sermons like that? Okay, quite a few of you. Well, I, I don't want to disappoint you, but I'm not going to do that. There's nothing wrong with those sermons. But because most of you have heard a sermon like that before, I want to take a little different angle this morning. I want to look at it from a different vantage point that perhaps you haven't seen before. You know, the main takeaway, as I, as I sat down and wrestled with this passage of Scripture this week in my studies, my main takeaway was this, that every single prayer, every single phrase of the Lord's Prayer points us to our need, our desperate need for Jesus. Every single phrase. So this prayer fits right in with the, the theme of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us, you know that that's been a theme. Jesus has said, has said stuff like this. You can't, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And we hear words like that and we're going, pfft. There's no way. We can't do that. Exactly the point. We need Jesus. We need the Jesus who came to fulfill the law and the prophets. We need Jesus who lived the life that we couldn't live so that when we call out to him for help, we are given his righteousness as a free gift, the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So the whole Sermon on the Mount is pointing us to who? To Jesus. We need him. Well, the Lord's prayer is no different. It's pointing us to the Lord. Let me show you how this works. Every single phrase, every single phrase of the Lord's prayer points us to our desperate need for Jesus. So if you don't remember anything else from what I say this morning, I want you to remember this one big idea. I'm going to put it up on the screen behind me here. Well, they are. I'm just going to tell them to. I want you to say this out loud with me. Okay, here it goes. Apart from Jesus, we don't have a prayer. But in Jesus, we do. Say that one more time, except louder. Apart from Jesus, we don't have a prayer. But in Jesus, we do. You know, we're going to take two weeks to get through the Lord's Prayer together. And we're, we're going to cover the first half this week and the second half next week. And the first half contains declarations spoken towards God. And the second half contains petitions asked of God. And there's a symmetry in this prayer that I'm going to expound on more next week. So that's my teaser. Come back next week for that. Um, and the petitions found in the second half hinge directly on the declarations to God in the first half. For instance, give us this day our daily bread hinges on the fact that God, or we can call God, our Father, and so on. Well, that being said, let's dive into our text together, starting with verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus sets up his example prayer by contrasting it with the way that the Gentiles in his day would have prayed to their small g gods, to their idols. The Gentiles believed that the answers to their prayers were dependent on the abundance of their words. You know, the more they talked, the more their gods might hear them. That's what their thinking was. And Jesus is saying, hey, no, prayer to the true God of the universe does not work that way. Don't be like those who really don't know him. Pray then like this. 
For your Father, key word, knows what you need before you ask them. Ask him. Verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven. Now, time out. Let's pause right there. Because you need to know what's going on culturally when Jesus introduces this prayer like this. As soon as Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, everybody in the crowd would have been looking at each other like, did he just say that? Why? Why would this have been shocking to them? Because throughout the Old Testament, although God is addressed in various ways as Father, you know, he's called the Father of Israel, the Father of all creation, although he's addressed that way, the Jewish people never addressed God as Father in prayer. He would, they would not have addressed him with such personal relationship language. They use other formal titles to talk to God or, or to address him in prayer. O Sovereign Lord. Lord God Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, Master, O Righteous One. Those were appropriate ways of addressing the God of the universe. And so what Jesus is doing here is radically unprecedented. This addressing God as Father is breaking all the traditional norms. He's blazing new theological territory here. Jesus is encouraging his disciples to relate to God in a way that no other person had previously even dared to relate to God. He's encouraging his disciples to pray to God as Father, just like he does. This is really significant. Also, you need to know that Jesus wasn't speaking in Greek, definitely not English. He was, he was most likely, it's recorded for us in Greek, this prayer is, but... As he was teaching, he wasn't speaking Greek. He was most likely speaking Aramaic. And in Aramaic, the term for father is Abba. Can you say that with me? Abba. Abba. On a side note, the Aramaic term for mom is Ima. Can you say that? Ima. Abba. Ima. You see how easy those are to say? They just kind of roll off the tongue. The English equivalent would be what? Daddy. Mama. Okay? That's, those are, where you intentionally make those easy for children to say. Well, why? Well, because of the intimacy that's there. So this term Abba is full of intimacy, innocence, childlike trust, the relationship of between a loving father and a child. You know, it's been well over a decade now since I had toddlers. I have th three daughters but I remember it almost like yesterday as they were taking their first steps and wobbling toward me with arms stretched out. Dada, dada. That's the picture here. That's the picture here. The, the picture of intimacy, of closeness, the relational connection. They were wanting to be close to me as their dada. And I'm an imperfect father. You know, Jesus could have easily taught his disciples to pray in a different way. He could have said, pray like this, our master in heaven, our creator in heaven, our king in heaven, our judge in heaven, our Lord in heaven, all of which are true. And yet, what did Jesus choose? He chooses Abba, Abba, and instructs us to address God as father, our father in heaven, like a child running to her daddy's arms. Now, we can understand why Jesus himself could address God 
as father and with this kind of intimacy. After all, he's the second person of the Trinity. And when he was baptized, a voice came from heaven and said what? Does anyone know? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So it makes perfect sense for Jesus to address God as Abba. But what's amazing here is that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is implying that you and I can also address God with the very same intimacy, which is a truly wonderful reality. When you and I come to God, he's not distant and uncaring. He's present and attentive. He's a good, good father. He's for you, not against you. We can come to him like little children toddling toward him, running towards him in his open arms, calling out, Abba, Father. Why? Because, my friends, in Jesus, orphans become children. Can you say that with me? In Jesus, orphans become children. That's the only way this works. For us to address God as Abba means we've got to become, what? Children of God. And that is what we are in who? In Christ. How do I know? 1 John 3, chapter 1. Read this with me. So what great, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called what? Children of God. And that is what we are. John 1, 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God, Galatians 4, 3 through 7, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you see this? So here's the gospel truth. Here's the gospel reality. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we should have died in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. So that now, by grace, through faith, we stand before God in Christ as adopted sons and daughters, completely clothed in his righteousness. And when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin and our shame. He sees what? He sees the righteousness of the only one who lived a perfect life, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the words of God that the God the Father spoke over Jesus at his baptism now apply just as much to you and to me, which are what? This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Those are the two words every child needs to hear from their father, the two, two realities. I love you and I'm proud of you. Jesus then goes on to say, listen to him. I love you. I'm proud of you. I endorse you. Those words apply to you as an adopted child of God. This is true of us because in Jesus, orphans become children. Would you say this out loud with me again? Apart from Jesus, we don't have a prayer, but in Jesus, we do. Because in Jesus, orphans become children. 
Okay, let's look at the next phrase in the Lord's Prayer, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, what does it say? Hallowed be your name. Okay, let's stop here again, a little time out. What does hallowed mean? It's, it's, a, it's a weird word. Uh, what does it mean to hallow? And that's not hello with some weird accent. It's different. Hallow means to set apart, to consider sacred, to set something apart as holy. So to hallow God's name would be to lift him up, to esteem him, to honor him, to glorify him, to worship him. That's what we mean by the word hallow. You might have heard, like, if you walked onto a college campus this week and there's some old building, the hallowed halls, you know, they're set apart, they're, they're special. Well, what will be the opposite, then, of hallowing God's name? If you, can, if you can hallow a name, you can also smear a name, right? You can slander a name. So the opposite of hallowing God's name would be to bring God's name into disrepute in some form or fashion. Now think with me on this for a moment. If we are the adopted children of God, what's the quickest way to bring God's name into disrepute? By acting in a way that's inconsistent with our Father's character, right? By not reflecting his holiness, his grace, his love to the world around us. I think Mahatma, Mahatma Gandhi once said, I would, I would love Christ if it weren't for those who are Christians. The quickest way to bring the name of God into disrepute is to act in a way that's opposite of the character of the God we profess. But what is the best way to hallow the name of God? By accurately reflecting his character as his children. Hold that thought for next week. Um, we're going to come back to it when we talk about forgiving as we've been forgiven. Okay? So, another little teaser for next week. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this prayer isn't just some kind of wishful thinking. Oh, I just hope some way, somehow your name is hallowed, God. That, that's not necessarily what's going on here. No. Um, we as God's representatives on earth are meant to get in on the action. When we pray, hallowed be your name, it's a commitment we're making. It means that we're committing ourselves to hallow it devoting ourselves to do our best to bring glory to his name as his representatives on earth. Now let's pause right here for some more cultural context. Think back to the Old Testament with me. Whose full-time job was it to hallow the name of God? Whose full-time job was it to be God's representatives on earth? Yeah, the priests in Israel. It was the priest's job to... to Hollow and hallow and revere and uphold God's name as sacred. In a way, it was every Israelite's job. <laughs> I could preach a whole other message on that. The entire nation was meant to be a kingdom of priests from Exodus, but there was one tribe, the Levites, who were set apart as special. They were the ones to be the priests. They were put in charge of worship in the temple. They were the ones who handled all the sacrifices, mediated the worship of the people to God and the blessings of God to the people. It was their full-time job to be stewards of the holiness of God, hallowing his name before the rest of the commoners, like you and like me. People like you and me, commoners, could not go, we could not waltz into the temple. 
particularly if you're a Gentile, you couldn't even get into the temple. You were relegated to the court of the, the Gentiles. But only priests could go in to where God's presence dwelled. So hallowing God's name was the priestly prerogative. And we've got to pause right here and see the significance of Jesus instructing his disciples to say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He, he, he is inviting his disciples to hallow God's name. In essence, Jesus is telling us, now this is your job too. Well, how is this possible? Well, because in Jesus, not only do orphans become children, but commoners become what? Priests. Jesus is ushering in a whole new era in God's kingdom plan. Something has changed. And now he is going to be using commoners like us to hallow the name of the Father. Look at 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Later in the same chapter, verse 9, Jesus um, this, this is what Peter says of Jesus' followers, but you are a cho- chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may pro- proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, that you may hallow, in other words, God's name. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This same language is used in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. We're speaking of Jesus We read this, for you, Jesus, were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. What a wonderful privilege you and I have been given. Here's the gospel truth. Here's the gospel reality. If Jesus is a perfect lamb who is slain in our place once for all time, you and I now by grace through faith in Jesus have been sanctified, set apart, made holy to hallow the name of God as his representatives on earth. In Jesus, you and I are now priests who steward the holiness of God. Say this out loud with me. Apart from Jesus, we don't have a prayer, but in Jesus, we do. Because in Jesus, orphans become children and commoners become priests. Okay, let's look at two more phrases together as we wrap up. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Say this out loud with me. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I could preach an entire sermon series on just these two phrases, but I'll spare you that for the sake of time. Um, But put simply, the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God. And for a first century Jew hearing Jesus say these words, what would they have thought of? Inevitably, they would have thought of the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming king that was promised in the Old Testament who would usher in a kingdom on earth that would make all things, wrong things right, make all things new. Everything broken would be made whole. Everything ugly would be made beautiful because God was going to reign on the throne on earth once again. 
And so for us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, is to long for the day like the Jews did in Jesus' day. Long for the day when all wrongs will be made right. When the Messiah will come, in the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones, make everything sad come untrue. To bring justice where there's injustice. To bring wholeness where there's brokenness. To make all things new. But my friends, when we look around us in this world, what do we still see? Brokenness. It's quite evident that although the kingdom of God has been inaugurated with Jesus, it has not yet come in its fullness on earth as it will one day. But Jesus gave us a glimpse, didn't he? When he was here, what did he do? He made the lame to walk. He made the blind to see. He made the dead rise. He was unfogging the glass for us about what's coming when he comes again as king. He came as savior the first time. So when he comes again, we would not meet him as a judge, but we would meet him as a friend when he comes as a king. He came riding on a donkey the first time, but it'll be a white war horse the second time. We look forward to that day. Because we look around us right now and we see broken relationships, we see heartache, we see disease, we see war, we see famine, natural disasters, ugliness, injustice, death. This world is a broken place, my friends. Just turn on the news. There are evil spiritual forces still at work on this earth that have not yet been banished by the kingdom of God and the king that's coming to set up the kingdom. The kingdom of God has not come in its fullness. And in the same way as praying, hallowed be your name, this is more than just wishful thinking to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is inviting participation here from his disciples. How so? He wants us to be devoted to getting in on the action. To pray this prayer means that you and I are committing ourselves to move move towards ugliness and bring beauty, to move towards chaos and bring order, to move towards injustice and bring justice, to move towards brokenness and bring healing, giving the people around us a tangible, albeit imperfect, picture of what this world is going to be like when King Jesus comes back and sets up his throne on earth. We're stewards of that as well. We get to show people in our everyday work as school teachers, as doctors, as nurses, as professors, as whatever, TDOT employees, whatever you do, delivering, making sure packages to get delivered with Amazon, whatever you do can be done in a way that brings glory to God as working for the Lord, not unto men. So show people a glimpse of what's coming when there's order from disorder and beauty from chaos and ugliness. How is this possible for us to do? Well, in Jesus, although we were once foreigners and far from God, we have been brought near. We've been included. You and I have become citizens of his kingdom. How do I know this? Well, read these verses with me. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our 
citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's kingdom language. It's coming, my friends. Ephesians 2, 17 through 19, and he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who are far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, most likely the Jewish people. For through him, we both, Jewish people and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you who are no longer, so then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are what? Fellow citizens and saints with the members of the household of God. My friends, here's the gospel reality. Gentile foreigners like you and like me have now have the same access to the Father as Jewish believers. We now have been brought near and included as kingdom citizens of the Messiah that's coming. This is amazing grace. Would you say this out loud with me again? Apart from Jesus, we don't have a prayer, but in Jesus we do. Say that like you mean it. Apart from Jesus, we don't have a prayer, but in Jesus, we do. Because in Jesus, orphans become children. Commoners become priests. Foreigners become what? Citizens. On the cross. If you've been, if you've been asleep, wake up now, because this, this, this will summarize it all. On the cross. The rightful son of God cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus lost his father. Why? So that orphans like you and me could be included as sons and daughters of God with an eternal inheritance. On the cross, Jesus, the rightful priest who perfectly hallowed the name of God every day of his life, died like what? A common thief. Why? So that commoners like you and me could become priests in the household of God, stewarding the holiness of God in and through our everyday lives. On the cross, Jesus, the rightful king who rules at the right hand of God, gave up his position, humbled himself, became obedient unto death. Why? So that foreigners like you and me could become citizens in the kingdom, living to give people a glimpse of what life will be like when King Jesus returns. In Jesus, orphans become children. Commoners become priests. Foreigners become citizens. As the worship team makes their way back to the stage, would you go ahead and stand if you're able? My friends, I don't know what you carried into this room when you walked in this morning. A broken relationship, anxiety about your job, anxiety about your classes at college, Syllabus shock, perhaps. A profound weariness from the brokenness around you. Loneliness from being in a new place. Longings for things to be made right or whole. Desire for healing from a disease. Struggle, pain, loss, grief, neediness, anger over some injustice. Whatever it is you carried into this room with you this morning, may I encourage you, as we close in song, would you prayerfully bring those things? Just picture putting them in your hands and holding them out. Would you bring those things to King Jesus this morning? Whatever it is that's weighing on you, 
Picture putting in your hands and lifting it up. And as you do, let me speak three things over you. You, my friend, are an adopted child. So God will never leave you or forsake you. You, my friend, are a sanctified priest. So God has plans to use you right where you are for his glory. You, my friend, are an included citizen. So God has given you an eternal home and an inheritance in an unshakable kingdom that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Apart from Jesus, we don't have a prayer. But in Jesus, we do. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, Abba, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.